You are listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with updates on ASCSU. Then, Ellie Shannon covers local news with details on an arrest made in the case of a Fort Collins crime spree. Then, Ben Haney gives you an inside look at the climate strike from this weekend. Coda Babcock goes over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies. Following that, we hear from young Ukrainian parliamentarian Alexander Sanchenko in an interview with College Radio Day about the status of Ukraine's university students. After that, Babcock goes over information on the passing of anti-gay legislation in Florida. And we get a history lesson on the San Jose Bees in painting the corners with Anton Schindler. After that, Eliza Droder goes over details in CSE's athletics. To conclude today's show, I explain updates on technology with information on the Blue Origin. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Kira McKinley reporting your campus news for Tuesday, March 29th. With finals looming just around the corner, some students may soon see an increase in their stress levels. If you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed, CSU is holding a Mindfully Managing Stress workshop to give students tools that may help them manage their stress. This workshop will go over 10 mindfulness techniques over the course of four weeks. The first session is taking place this Thursday at 4.15 over Zoom. For more information, email vbat at colostate.edu. In other news, CSU's Earth Month starts this week. There will be various events this week and throughout April that will support sustainable efforts and awareness. One of the first events of Earth Month will be held this Friday. The ASCSU Environmental Affairs will be handing out energy-efficient light bulbs from noon to 2 on the LSC Plaza. Last Wednesday, the Supporting the Growing Food Security Project was proposed to ASCSU, according to Piper Russell of the Collegian. This bill would give $25,860 to the Growing Food Security Project over the course of three years. This project aims to provide healthy food for students and people in need. Thank you for listening to my CSU campus news updates. I'm Kira McKinley, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU. Here's Ellie Shannon with your local news updates. This is Ellie Shannon with your local news. An Aurora man is facing up to 25 charges after a multiple-day Fort Collins crime spree from December of 2020. 42-year-old Pedro Ortiz spent four days in the city stealing cars, breaking into vehicles, burglarizing properties, and committing other crimes, according to Jenny Ivey of Fox 31 News. Ortiz was arrested this month on several felony charges, including aggravated motor vehicle theft, criminal mischief and burglary, and more. Anyone with more information can contact Detective David Lindsay at 970-416-2017. Rocky Mountain National Park's most photographed bull elk has died. The elk was estimated to have lived 10 years, but was found dead by wildlife photographers on Sunday. The bull was last seen weighing around 1,000 pounds on March 7th. Tracks around the elk shown it could have been taken down by a mountain lion, but the cause of death is still unknown as the animal was limping in previous sightings. A small wildfire is burning east of Estes Park and just south of Highway 34. The Larimer County Sheriff's Office has reported that mandatory evacuations are underway between Estes Park and Drake in the Big Thompson Canyon. The fire was initially reported at 4.15 p.m. Monday afternoon and was reported at 30% contained on Monday night. There is another fire that broke out near Boulder on Saturday, causing the evacuation of over 19,000 people. 
this fire has been contained. Some residents are concerned about the upcoming fire season based on the number of serious fires that have occurred already this year. Fort Collins City Council will pick the top candidate for city manager today, according to the Coloradoan. The council met on Saturday to discuss the top five finalists, all of whom participated in panel interviews, spoken at a virtual public forum, met with council, and attended a community reception on Thursday. Thanks for listening to my campus news. Thanks for listening to my local news. This is Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM. Now, let's hear from Ben Haney about the climate strike from this past weekend. Ranking seventh in the country in oil production and containing some of the worst air quality in the country, Colorado is no stranger to the detrimental effects of the oil and gas industry. The Fort Collins climate strike, led by a coalition of voices in the area, seeks to stop CSU's use of fossil fuels, help return Hughes land back to indigenous stewardship, and that Larimer County halts all current and future oil and gas permits in the county. We came together to say in one voice that we want change to happen in our community, to say in one voice that we understand that our neighbor's fight is our own fight and that we're gonna fight it just the same. That was Eric Nottingham, a student organizer and head of the 970 protest journal. We also talked to one of the speakers, Hunter, about the event. Part of the idea of this is to bring folks together who don't necessarily agree on everything. Um, you know, not one organization endorses the, the views of the other, but we share some common goals and struggle. When the planet we love is under attack, what do we do? Another CSU student and organizer, Riley Ruff, had this to say about CSU's detrimental use of their budget. When you look at CSU's endowment page, they have over $500 million invested in a variety of different businesses, and those businesses are not listed on their endowment page. So in order to find out where their money is going, you have to do a significant amount of digging. Over a million dollars of that investment is going to the fossil fuel industry, and when we look at the environmental degradation associated with the fossil fuel industry, they emit over 40% of U.S. carbon dioxide emissions per year. When we look at climate justice, climate justice is social justice. So if we're not actively addressing the issues that are pressing our BIPOC communities, that are pressing our communities experiencing homelessness, then we are not addressing the problem. And if CSU was really a land-grant institution, they would have given that land back years ago. It is our duty as a university with immense socioeconomic power and immense people power to stand up and fight alongside those communities because ultimately there are people too. Ed Bean, a media head for the Larimer Health and Safety Advisory Board, has been working to spread awareness about air quality in Colorado. Currently we're trying to get the uh, Larimer County government to set up a comprehensive 24-7 air quality monitoring station. Um, it's not so much about whether we've got that much oil and gas development in Larimer County itself, it's that we're downwind of 22,000 fracking wells in Weld County. And you got to have the information in order to do any kind of enforcement. The time is now to act, to advocate, to use your voice, because our existence depends on it. Future protests and activities can be found by following 970 underscore protest underscore journal. This has been Ben Haney with KCSU-FM. That was Ben Haney for KCSU News. We'll be right back.
DJ Vertigo here. Tune in every Monday from 9 to 11 p.m. to explore new songs, enjoy some late night vibes to wind down your day on my show, Anything Goes. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of campus and local news with Kira McKinley and Ellie Shannon, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports over 9,100 cases of COVID-19 at its Fort Collins campus. Wednesday, the university saw one new case among students and no new cases among employees. Masks are no longer required on campus, with the exception of some buildings like the CSU Health Network. Larimer County reports low community transmission for COVID-19 based on Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Standards. In the county, over 77,700 cases are reported along with over 480 deaths. Larimer County reports a seven-day case rate of about 58 cases per 100,000 residents, and about 3% of all COVID-19 tests taken in the county came back positive in the past week. New COVID-19-related hospital admissions remain low and less than 1% of inpatient beds are occupied by COVID-19 patients. The state of Colorado reports over 1.3 million cases of COVID-19 and around 13,000 COVID-19 deaths. 4.8 million people received testing in the state, and over 61,000 people are hospitalized overall in Colorado. 10.3 million vaccine doses were administered by this morning in the state, and over 3.9 million Colorado residents are fully immunized against COVID-19. The CDC reports over 79.7 million COVID-19 cases in the United States and over 974,000 deaths. Deaths are going down nationally, as are cases. Around 82% of the national population is vaccinated with at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm Koda Babcock, and that's all for Tuesday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you are a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. Now we're going to hear from Ukrainian parliamentarian and head of Ukraine's presidential party's youth wing, Alexander Sanchenko. In addition to hearing from Sanchenko, you'll also hear the experiences of college students in Ukraine as they struggle to go home. Hello, hello to everyone. Simone Pavesi is here and I'm with my colleague Nadia Huntentik. Hi, Nadia. Hi, Simone. We are in the radio studios of the European Parliament in Strasbourg. Today, we want to show our solidarity to the Ukrainian people. Eurofonica, Raduni, the University Media and Operators Association and World College Radio Day support the Ukrainian strength. 
This week, we have covered the works of the plenary session of the Parliament, from the situation of refugees of the East to the foreign interferences in EU democracy. Parliament has approved a resolution to condemn them and to renew the mandate of the Special Parliamentary Commission. We have also listened to the speech of the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaja Kallas, who has made a strong appeal to all members in order to have a common defense. Furthermore, we have interviewed some members and we suggest you to listen to the podcast. In our contents, we have talked about the measures of council and of commission to contrast the Putin's war. In these days, we are following the activities of the Conference on the Future of Europe that involves directly the European citizens to write the story of tomorrow. Now we have the opportunity to collect the witness of a member of the Ukrainian parliament. He comes from Sluha Narodu party, the same party of the president Volodymyr Zelensky. He is Oleksandr Sanchenko. Thank you for being with us. Mr. Sanchenko, how are the university students in Ukraine? How are universities in Ukraine? Um, you know, it's uh, different uh, from region to region because in some regions actual war is going on, in some regions more calm. Uh, so uh, students uh, go to the territorial defense, uh, help volunteering and uh, help to organizations donate uh, blood and collect necessary assistance for the army force and the people that are in need. Everyone who has experience in military affairs had the right to take the individual schedule and uh, academic leave and to join the armed forces of Ukraine to defend our territory. Actually, everyone is doing everything possible to end this war as soon as possible. In cities like Chernihiv, Kharkiv, Irpen, we have uh, destroyed universities by Russians and destroyed student dormitories. Uh, There are actually the fights in many cities and it's difficult to access to for the educational process and to educational infrastructure. So it's if say in general what's going on and considered to students. Are there some projects or safe corridors in place between universities to track the students? About your second question about the safe corridors between universities. Uh, give you some examples. Uh, In Kharkiv, students of National University of Pharmacy were evacuated to the Dnipro city and the completely destroyed University of the State Fiscal Service of Ukraine was moved to the uh, Chernivtsi. Uh, and so most of the destroyed universities and uh, educational institutions, uh, I hope, will find a place to continue their activities, so we're working on it as well. Also, I'm convinced that after the war, with help of partners uh, from the European Union, we will rebuild these universities, universities that survived uh, after Second World War, but failed uh, after the Russian invasion. Um, as for the educational process uh, for information after two weeks of war, it was decided that uh, in areas where the It's more peaceful and quiet, uh, will be distance learning uh, established from uh, March 13. So even in the war, Ukraine takes care of its students because scholarship continue to be paid and uh, it is possible to live in dormitories because the war actually caught uh, many of students by surprise and um, getting home for now is quite difficult for them or even impossible. What can the university students in Italy do to help and support the Ukrainian universities right now? I think it could be a good idea if 
there will be links some with Italian university and Ukrainian university and uh, it could be like a different kind of helps uh, because in some places it's need like humanitarian help and the people are in the cities that are invaded and there are problems with humanitarian needs. Um, some universities that are fully ruined, maybe if Italian university could um, get these uh, people for some time while the war is going on to to be uh, held in, in the university process in dormitories of Italian universities, it will be uh, great as well. And uh, of course, uh, there could be a big support from uh, Italian students uh, to support the no-fly zone. Uh, um, the territory of Ukraine because uh, the bombs, uh, aircrafts uh, that give bombs uh, doing only this because we have no fly zone. It's a big issue and we push the European politics NATO to, to give us this fly zone and of course to give like uh, um, the, the aircraft that will help to defend our territory. So it's a big uh, issue and uh, the, the big uh, thing that Italian uh, young people, students could do just to push the politicians to help more Ukraine because it's so it's war not about only Ukraine, it's war about the Europe as well. And of course, in this meaning, uh, there are a big issue of the nuclear stations uh, because two of them now is under control of Russian troops and it could be like the Chernobyl number two and it could be the end for the Europe. So uh, you could push the political politics, politicians to make more, do not uh, it happen. What does Ukraine actually expect from Europe and the Europeans? Ukraine and Ukrainians uh, really needed and expect uh, from Europeans support in humanitarian and another kind of support. And from Europe, European politics expect more courage, more courage to do the no-fly zone on the territory of Ukraine to not give the option to Russian Federation to do some bombing the civilians, uh, children, the students. Uh, we need more support to the sanctions in Russia. The more sanctions, the faster the war will end. We need uh, informational support about the nuclear situation in Ukraine. Here, as I already told, the two nuclear stations are uh, under the control of Russia and they could do the Chernobyl that's number two and it's six times more than it was. It will be the end of the Europe and uh, we don't actually see the understanding of this of European politics. So the students could uh, raise up these questions. Do, do the politics do enough? Uh, to protect Europe, no, not only Ukraine, it's uh, already about the Europe. Uh, Putin won't uh, stop on the border of Ukraine if uh, the European Union will be uh, such uh, behaving as now. And of course, the question of integration of uh, Ukraine in uh, European Union uh, as a full member, uh, it's uh, also important. And, and as far as I know about the studies, uh, most of uh, people in Europe supporting uh, this idea. And uh, of course, it's like the students as a most progressive part uh, of the uh, nations, uh, I'm sure must to put on the map this uh, question to, to the politics. 
So if the people in the country support this, why it's going on so slowly? So if to say in general, we quite expect uh, support from Europeans and we see this support when we're really grateful for this. And uh, we expect more courage, more courage from the European politics. And I'm sure the students of uh, Italia could help them to feel this courage, to, to do their best for, for the better future of the Europe. Thank you, Mr. Sanchenko, for your availability. Our time is finished. You can stay up to date with our contents on the website radunis.org, on our social, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can also listen to all our podcasts on Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts. We renew our message of closeness to Ukrainian people and also to all Russian people that are fighting to change their country for the truth and the freedom. It's Anton Schindler, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Cutta Babcock for KCSU News. You're listening to National News Highlights for Tuesday. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the controversial Don't Say Gay bill into law Monday. Anthony Izaguar from the Associated Press reports the law forbids instruction that mentions sexuality or gender identity from kindergarten through third grade. Critics say that this will not actually include the inclusion of heterosexuality or cisgender-specific ideas of gender identity and roles, but will continue to marginalize LGBT people. Proponents of the bill in Florida say this puts discussion of gender and sexuality into the hands of parents between kindergarten and third grade and provides a reasonable restriction on educators in the state. DeSantis said just before signing the bill, quote, we will make sure that parents can send their kids to school to get an education, not an indoctrination, end quote. President Joe Biden is among many critics of the bill and said that the law is harmful. Florida students walked out of classes in protest recently, packing statehouse halls, chanting, We Say Gay. Disney is also among the critics of the bill, with CEO Bob Chapek saying Disney's goal is, quote, for this law to be repealed by the legislator or struck down in the courts, and we remain committed to supporting the national and state organizations working to achieve that, end quote. President Joe Biden's newest budget proposal focuses on a minimum tax on billionaires and on the ideas laid out in his Build Back Better agenda. Tamara Keith from NPR reports that the budget, like similar documents from Biden's predecessors, is a document outlining visions and goals rather than serving as actual policy. Biden's budget is over 150 pages and discusses reducing energy costs, funding free community college access, and offering high-quality free preschool. In addition to focusing on energy and education, $32.2 billion is allocated to adding more police officers into local departments, as well as funding community violence intervention projects and programs. 
The billionaire tax would mean that any household worth more than $100 million is required to pay 20% income tax, and corporate tax rates would be raised as well. The White House says that this would decrease the national deficit by over half of what it was in 2021. Biden requested over $800 billion for defense as the Russia-Ukraine conflict continues in Europe. Mike Stone from Reuters reports that $813 billion budget would allow a nearly 5% pay increase for troops and would increase military research and development funding significantly. Over $770 billion of the budget would be put directly towards the Pentagon, with $40 billion dedicated to defense programs for national agencies like the Department of Energy. Bipartisan concern for safety during the Ukraine crisis calls for additional Pentagon funding, with funding for the Pentagon's European Deterrence Initiative receiving $360 billion of the over $770 billion allocated to the agency. This military budget focuses heavily on modernizing military devices like submarines and bombers, missile warning options, and advancing space operations. Amazon workers in Alabama and New York continue to fight for unionization of the company. AP and CBS News report that this union effort may be the toughest fight yet for Amazon, with workers in both states preparing for union elections in coming weeks at Staten Island and Bessemer warehouses. If either location's workers approve of unionization, they will be part of the first successful organizing effort in Amazon's history of operating in the U.S. New York, unlike Alabama, is not a right-to-work state, meaning that companies can enter contracts with unions making workers pay union dues. As a result, Amazon can threaten to fire workers who don't pay their union dues while joining the union, and the company is using that to their advantage as they fight against unionization within their warehouses. Alabama, however, does ban companies like Amazon from charging union dues through a contract with the union, and workers from the Bessemer warehouse plan to use their union to ask for better working conditions. While Amazon does pay higher than average wages in Bessemer at $15.80 per hour, transportation is a common struggle for Alabama workers, with many driving as far as 100 miles each way. In New York, pay is lower than the average wage in Staten Island, while the average wage in the borough is $41 per hour, Amazon pays just over $18 an hour, meaning that workers commute from other areas through subways, buses, and ferries. After evidence that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife contacted a Trump official about overturning election results in 2020, Senator Dick Durbin calls for the justice to recuse himself from cases related to the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Allison Pekarin from ABC News reports that Durbin, who is a chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, says the involvement of the justice's wife, Ginny Thomas, in this case was a conflict of interest. Clarence Thomas was the only justice to vote to block the January 6th committee from accessing Trump records from the White House based on executive privilege. Durbin says the Senate Judiciary Committee will discuss whether or not Clarence Thomas should be investigated, following Judge Kentaji Brown-Jackson's in-statement into her pending role as a justice. That's all for National News. I'm Cota Babcock for KCSU News. Up next, we're going to hear a brief history of the San Jose Bees with Anton Schindler and his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. If you want to hear this again, be sure to check him out on Spotify or at kcsufm.com. As always, be sure to check out KCSU News on the KCSU app on kcsufm.com or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 44 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. As I'm sure you're all aware, baseball is officially back. 
On March 10th, 2022, Major League Baseball and the Players Association finalized and signed a new collective bargaining agreement that will last until December 2026, putting an end to the 99-day MLB lockout once and for all. That means, over the past week and a half, we've had spring training baseball to listen to, and, starting April 7th, regular season baseball to kick off the full 162-game season. Now, there have been such a flurry of free agent signings and trades since this new CBA was released, and it's been awesome to watch. It's just been so exciting every single moment of it. I mean, there were a lot of new changes that came with the new CBA that will change baseball this season and possibly pretty far into the future as well. On the money side of things, the new five-year CBA includes increased minimum salaries, as well as a new pre-arbitration bonus pool, which will be used to reward the top young players in the game. And there will be a raise in competitive balance tax thresholds, evening out teams and their money disparity a little bit more. Also, the MLB will introduce a new draft lottery system, and a new system built to prevent any alleged service time manipulation and limits on the number of times a player can be optioned in a season to address any concerns regarding roster churn. Some new rules that came out of the talks include a universal designated hitter, meaning that the National League will now have a designated hitter, just like the American League, and the playoffs have been expanded to include 12 teams, two more than usual. There's a few other rules taking effect later on in 2023, including the adoption of a pitch clock, making the bases bigger, making an automatic strike and ball zone, also known as a robo-ump if you're wondering, and getting rid of the shift altogether. This is just a quick look at some of the new changes that came with the brand new collective bargaining agreement, but I highly recommend reading through it to get the full picture, because there are a couple other rules and stuff like that that are actually worth kind of paying attention to. Regardless, the important thing about all of this is, baseball is back. There will be no missed games to this season. And all teams will start either April 7th or April 8th in pursuit of playoff baseball once again. Now, I think that I speak for just about every baseball fan when I say, oh boy, we missed you baseball. Anyway, let's get into this week's episode, which admittedly is a bit of a strange one. Today, we're talking about the San Jose Bees, who were and still are an independent league baseball club from 1962 to present day. The name was changed a few times in their history, before the team became the San Jose Giants, the present-day low-A minor league affiliate for the San Francisco Giants. Back in the mid-1980s, the independent league baseball team received the name the San Jose Bees after a one-year stint as the San Jose Expos, when the club was the Montreal Expos' main Class A advanced affiliate. The Bees kept their name from 1983 to 1988, before becoming the present-day San Jose Giants. 
In the 60-year history of the team, the Class A ball club has developed around 190 Major League players, from Buster Posey and Tim Lincecum to Pablo Sandoval, Madison Bumgardner, and Adam Duvall. This team has seen a lot of success as well, with 10 league titles, with the oldest coming in 1962 and the newest in 2021, and 9 division titles as well. However, for a stretch there, this team really struggled and was frankly weird. From 1983 to 1987, the Bees couldn't win more than 56 games, save the 1986 season where the team went 65-77, and just a year before the team lost 109 games. Now, the Bees in this era, from 1986 to 1987, was really just a huge melting pot of players. Some were ex-professional baseball players that had time in the MLB, some were players from overseas, and some were players that had dreams, hopes, aspirations of making it to the big leagues. Some of the big leaguers coming down to the team included Mike Norris, the 31-year-old that had a 22-win season and came runner-up in the 1980 American League Cy Young Award. Ken Wright, who was the 1980 National League All-Star starting third baseman from the St. Louis Cardinals, and Steve Howe, the 1980 NL Rookie of the Year, in his time with the Dodgers. Steve McCaddy, the 1981 AL leader in wins in ERA, Todd Cruz, the starting third baseman for the 1983 World Championship Orioles, and a couple other had-been-great-names populated this team as well. They were all down in the Bees organization for pretty much the same reason. Drug abuse. But all of these players kind of just wanted another chance at professional baseball. One that was given by the young general manager Harry Stavrinos, or Harry Steve as he was later called. Steve was given the job based on a lot of networking (laughs) between other baseball clubs and other jobs that he had. He moved around from a marketing job during college to an assistant manager, and eventually, at the age of 26, he was asked to be the general manager for the San Jose Bees. Steve was given a bit of a failing team, too. After a bad result in 1982, Steve was given a team that was without a major league affiliation, with little money, and really this huge melting pot of players that were set to help him earn it back. Steve used his connections to get five players from the Cebu Lions in Japan, as well as $25,000 to contribute to their salaries. The deals he worked out with players were based for the most part, on promises, as Steve was really just giving these guys a place to play, to hopefully get back into the sport that they loved. But kind of an example of this is Kenny Foster, who was one of the players that was signed to the team for one reason, and really one reason only. He had a car. And unlike almost all the other players on the team, his license hadn't been suspended for various reasons. So, Foster used his car to help transport the team to games. With a band of misfits and players fresh out of rehab, 
Harry Steve set out to find a manager. Who would be 18-year-old coaching veteran Frank Verdi? Now, Verdi turned down the job as he was offered a job with the Yankees, and after some discussion, including Verdi trying to get his son to be the manager for the team, Harry Steve decided that he'd just put on another hat and become the manager of that squad as well. However, even that did not last long for the young GM. At one point in the season, Steve received a call from the National Association of Baseball for the California League, telling him to not pitch Steve Howe that night, who was, at the time, one of the better pitchers on the Bs. The reason behind it was that Howe actually failed a drug test. But Steve, frustrated with this call, called Howe and asked him if he could pitch that night anyway. Now, after a decent performance from the pitcher, Harry got a call the very next day from the office that resulted in an indefinite suspension from the game for Harry, as you can imagine. Later on in that season, Steve was up in the stands watching the game since he really couldn't do anything else for the team. Now, during that game, some drunken fans recognized the old manager and started to heckle him. The Bees players started to yell at the fans, trying to get them to stop heckling, but they just continued to do it. Now, after the end of the inning, like literally after the end of the inning, a couple of the Bees players decided to end it once and for all by scaling the fence and brawling with the fans. Now, as you can imagine, that didn't really go over well, with locals saying, we don't want these drug addicts in our town, and so on and so forth. Now, you can imagine that a team of ex-Major League Baseball players, many of which were phenoms in their prime, would draw in thousands of fans every single night. But because of the problems all of these players and the team had, I mean, they could barely draw in a couple hundred fans per game. The bees found themselves in the national spotlight, betrayed as almost zoo animals, and given the name the Bad Nose Bees or the Bad News Bees, as they were later called. But the bees continued to play on. Some of the pitchers, like Norris, went 4-3 with a 144 ERA in his 11 starts. He struck out 62 batters in that time. Howe, after serving a shorter suspension, had a 147 ERA over 49 innings with 37 strikeouts of his own. And I think it's important to point these guys out because it kind of puts into perspective the kinds of players that were on this team. I mean, they were good. They were really good, in fact. But because of the problem that they were getting themselves into, no major league team wanted them. They could not be forgiven for that abuse that they showcased when they were in the major leagues on their first go-around. I mean, there were so many players that disobeyed Harry and still went out and drank heavily. Many more of these players were on their way out of baseball. Older guys that were good at one point, but couldn't turn it around afterwards. And as players came and went, they kind of started to fall out of the team, as more would just come in for another chance. This constant turnaround of players led to a 65-77 and 77 win-loss record, which, looking at it, honestly isn't that bad seeing what was going on with this team during the season. This was also way better than any of the seasons leading up to it, to be fair but still bad enough for 4th place in the division. 
The constant movement of players led to only three of the 15 former Major League players coming back to the team that next season in 1987. And it kind of showed. Now, although more fans started to attend more games after hearing about the circus act that was the 1986 Bs, the huge loss of Major League level talent really took a hit on the ball club. By the end of the 1987 season, the Bees finished with 33 wins and 109 losses, 61 games out of first place. It was around that point that the Bees were scooped up by the San Francisco Giants and rebranded to be the San Jose Giants and finally given the affiliation that they needed. And as it turned out, a couple players moved on, others went to other teams, and a few stayed with the club. But regardless, it was the first and the last time that this melting pot of misfits were together. To say that this team was bad is a bit of an understatement, admittedly. I mean, the Bees had lost 259 games in just three seasons after their last winning season in 1979. I mean, by the time that the Giants took them in, rebranded them, the Bees had lost 443 games and won only 264. A kind of scary stat. But all that aside, I think it really is just a case of what this team represented that makes this story so special. I mean, this team truly was just the misfits, a bunch of old, washed-up ballplayers mixed with young talent that blew their chances in the big leagues, as well as players international players that could hardly speak any English. I mean, they were the squad that baseball just didn't want back, no matter how good they were or how much they had improved or developed. I mean, they really just played for another chance, but ended up kind of being part of something just bigger, a club of guys just like themselves in a breakfast club sort of way. Harry Steve realized that a team like that could only really be around for a year, maybe two, thanks to all those problems and the craziness that the team endured. But looking back at it now, it's just crazy. It's insane to think that this really did happen on a professional level independent league ball team. I mean, baseball really does have a weird way of bringing everyone together and allowing for this kind of craziness to happen in the first place. So in next week's episode, we're going to talk about another kind of weird and crazy event from the long history of the MLB, as we'll talk about the 1919 World Series, which was historically known for being thrown, and how a data pioneer sports writer from that time, by the name of Hugh Fullerton, was able to spot the fix before it even happened. And then, after all of that, We'll do a preview of the 2022 MLB season as we make some predictions going into another season of Major League Baseball. Thank you for listening. KCSU and Blast to Scrap are coming together to bring an all-day punk hardcore concert to campus. Fool's Fest takes place on April 1st at the Sutherland Garden just outside the Lowry Student Center. This is not a joke. Come see local musicians such as Wolf Blitzer, Spud Broker, and King Crawdad. There will be even a chance for you to print out your own patch for your denim. 
Come check out the show in between classes on April 1st from noon to 7 p.m. Presented by 90.5, KCSU, and Blast and Scrap. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In women's softball, the team is 11-16, and 16, winning all three games against San Jose State this weekend. Their next three games are at home against Utah State starting Friday. In track and field, the teams took part in the Spank Blazing Invitational, their spring season opener. Congrats to the first-place finishers Lauren Offerman, Jessica Oze, Jalen Jasper, Yolanda Johnson, Gabby McDonald, Michaela Hawkins, Morgan Stewart, Lexi Keller, Michaela Williams, and all the other podium finishers. In women's golf, the team placed 11th in the Clover Cup, and in men's golf, they tied for 12th in the National Invitational Tournament. In women's tennis, the team has lost their last three matches against ranked teams, including Fresno State, and their next match will be against Air Force this weekend, along with New Mexico State. If you are interested in student tickets, Go to csurams.evenue.net to get your tickets for upcoming volleyball games and more. My name is Eliza Drotard. This has been your RMR Sports Report. Join CTV tonight for a conversation with presidential and vice presidential ASCSU candidates Rob Long and Elijah Sandoval. Tonight's show will be live streamed by CTV Channel 11 on YouTube at 7 p.m. Sandoval is affiliated with KCSU. This is Ellie Shannon with your tech news for Tuesday, March 29th. Wealthy space tourists are going to experience Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin launch with its fourth crewed New Shepard flight this week. The Blue Origin is apparently the safest human spaceflight vehicle ever designed or built, according to a quote from William Harwood of CBS News. Gary Lay, who's one of the Blue Origin's first employees and the architect of the New Shepard program, will be joining the crew. Jeff Bezos took off on their very first mission in July of 2021. Costs for the trip have not been disclosed, but there are estimates it could be as much as half a million dollars for one seat. Spotify will be rolling out a COVID-19 content advisory tab on podcasts and other content that mentions the coronavirus. According to Jessica Bertznitsky of CNBC News, the feature comes after a handful of musicians and creators boycotted the platform for its airing of the Joe Rogan experience, which they say spread COVID-19 vaccine misinformation. There are accusations from medical professionals as well, stating that Rogan repeatedly spread conspiracy theories about COVID-19. Spotify has been under fire for hosting the episodes and the first initial plans of the warning appearing on content were announced two months ago. A 29-year-old Tennessee man was arrested over the weekend for allegedly attempting to track his partner using an Apple Watch hooked around the wheel of her car. Lawrence Welch was arrested after security noticed he had been following his partner at a family safety center 
according to Joanna Chrisholm of Yahoo News. His partner, who is not named, frequently visited the Center for Protection from Welch after he repeatedly uttered death threats against her on multiple occasions. Welch is already facing two domestic violence charges from incidents that occurred in 2021, leading to another arrest in December. That's all for your tech news. Thanks for listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. This is Ellie Shannon. And now for the weather. Today was cool and rainy with a high of 55 degrees and a low of 31 degrees. Wednesday, expect cloudy skies and cool temperatures with a high of 50 and a low of 29. Thursday will warm up to a high of 62 with a low of 36. And for Friday, check us out this Thursday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for our next weather report on the Rocky Mountain Review from KCSU News. I'm Coda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David DeMuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Bandel, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. Thank you.